Hello, this is Martin Foster. I am the Director of the Liturgy Office for the Bishops' Conference, and I'm with uh, Father Rob Taylorson, who's a member of the Spirituality Committee of the Conference, and also Spiritual Director at Oscott College, our seminary in Birmingham. We're here to look at a recent publication um, from the Bishops' Conference, published by the Catholic Truth Society, uh, which is called Deliver Us From Evil, with the subtitle Prayers and Supplications Which May Be Used in the Struggle Against the Power of Darkness. Father Rob, what is this book? It is derived from a, a liturgical source, and that liturgical source is one of the appendices from the rite of exorcism. It's important to stress that it's not a rite of exorcism in itself. Formal exorcism in the church is reserved to the bishop or to the priest that he specifically delegates for that. And the full rite of exorcism is limited in its use and in knowledge of it to the bishop or to his delegated priest. But some years ago, the liturgical congregation in Rome decided that one of the appendices from the rite of exorcism, which is Appendix 2, and consists of traditional prayers that have been used by the Catholic population for many years, and also psalms and other phrases of Scripture that are traditionally associated with prayer against evil and victory over evil, that these should be collated in a single document with the option that individual bishops' conferences could add local prayers and prayers that were generally used in their locality, and that short introductions may be given as well. The original option to publish this was given some years ago now, and I'm delighted to see that the Bishops' Conference and CTS have finally brought this to, to publication. I think it will be not only a useful resource, but also a good reference in a world where, particularly in the social media and on the internet, there are all sorts of strange understandings of evil and strange understandings of the battle against evil. Thank you. I'd like to come back to that last thought, but if this isn't for the exorcists in the diocese, the diocesan exorcists, who's it intended for? Who's the audience for it? All of the CTS publications are intended for widespread use. There is nothing in the text that is complicated or that anyone from school age onwards wouldn't be able to understand. So it, it really is intended to be universal perhaps particularly for those involved in teaching and encouraging prayer through schools, through parish catechesis, through diocesan schemes, in seminaries and other theological institutes, so the whole gamut. And quite a lot of the content, as you say, will be familiar to people already. Yes. It, you know, starting with the Lord's Prayer itself. Indeed, yes. Yes, there's, although depending on one's cultural background, some of the prayers may be more or less familiar. Within the Catholic Church in England and Wales, my guess is that virtually all of these, if not all of these, are already used regularly for the purposes of praying for what is good and praying against evil. 
So it'll it'll be a helpful compendium for people bringing it together in that way. Indeed, yes. Would you like to say something about the the books ordered in prayers for immediate protection, protection, then thanksgiving, then faith, and something about that kind of that suggests some sort of journey of prayer in there? It does. One can see, for instance, in the life of Christ, that there are some prayers which were immediate. One would obviously be thinking of his temptation in the wilderness and his his use of scripture passages against the temptations that he had there. And on a more general level of teaching, there would be uh, the Our Father, which took place at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. And in response to, after he himself having prayed, his disciples asking him, Lord, teach us how to pray as John taught his disciples. And that series of petitions, which is the Our Father, is then the central prayer of the community. The sense of thanksgiving is great and necessary to put the whole thing in context, because we see the continued presence of evil in the light of the power of the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, which we celebrate as the source and summit of our Christian life as we continue that same journey each week in the Masses which we celebrate. And so we are not centrally a people who are overawed by evil. We are centrally a Eucharistic people of thanksgiving. And the evil which we see and which distresses us and which causes us lament and prompts us to renew our efforts and our our journey of prayer that comes from the thanksgiving of the death and resurrection of of Christ and our yearning that that have its full power in our world of today. Your average man on the street, if he thinks of evil at all, will more often these days have a dualistic uh, vision that there's a good guy who is God and there's a bad guy who is Satan and there's a battle going on. And a lot of the internet sites build on this Whereas the revelation that God gives us in the scriptures is that everything which is created is created by God as good. And everything that is sustained in creation is sustained by God. And that evil, the reality of evil, is when the beauty of God's creation is corrupted. And so the fullness of the understanding of evil is seen in the light of God's creation, all of which is good, and the potential for corruption from that goodness. You know, in reality, God created all things, including Satan. God holds in being and enables all things in being to continue to live, including Satan. And therefore, it's not a question of an antagonism between two equal powers. Rather, it is God's creation of a world which includes free will and that free will, whether it be of the original angels or whether it be of humankind, means that corruption of the perfect world created by God can take place. So that means those who pick up this booklet or pray in general can pray with hope. Yes. And also, for me, one of the good ways to approach the presence of evil often is to understand it as the corruption of something which is good. 
I think that's most easy to see for me in things like virtue. Mm -hmm. And if one goes back to the ancient Greek philosophers, they would see moral virtues often as being somewhere on a median point between two vices. So if you're talking about the virtue of courage, you would see if you go too far one direction, you get to recklessness. And if you go too far in another direction, you get to cowardice. But a lot of the aspects of virtue, people seeking justice can easily turn to anger. People seeking gentleness can easily turn to laziness. And several of the great fathers of the church have explained how easy it is to have subtle corruptions and for virtues. I think the great teacher on this is Gregory the Great. Again, part of our heritage, which makes easier the understanding of what we're praying for and enabling us to do that in the light of God's revelation and the truth of the beauty of that creation. So this is really, this is a gift from the bishops to the church in England and Wales and a comfort, we hope, to many people. Indeed, yes. yes. Prayer of its essence always renews hope. The ideal prayer is also to have one's heart in union with the heart of Christ. And that's something that both unites God's people as the body of Christ and enables the full power of God's Spirit to work through we who are the body of Christ. And to see it all as great privilege, again, among the great writers of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas talks about all prayer being a secondary cause, saying that the first cause of everything is God, but that God has created the world, allowing that the will of human beings can help to bring about what is good. And that's most obvious when we think of physical things. You know, if there's a, a little old lady and we help her across the road with our shopping, we're acting as a secondary cause of bringing about good. But it's also an immense privilege to be able to do that in the spiritual domain, which is simply by prayer, by bringing our petitions, our intercessions, and our thanksgivings to God, and deepening our trust in him. That reminds me of something I, I read in the, in, in the introduction, that we don't see prayer as kind of mechanistic, you know, yes. that, that if we do this five times, it will work. Yes. There's, a, there's a different understanding here, which again, I think is, is contrary to kind of secular. Or, there is, yeah. yes. A lot of folk religion is based on a supposition that if one gets exactly the right words with exactly the right paraphernalia surrounding it, then God will have no alternative than to grant what you want. There are wonderful major gifts that God gives to his church, most notably the sacraments in which that happens. The great pastoral priest, John Vianney, in his Eucharistic meditations, he talks about, is it better to be an angel or better to be a parish priest? And he argues, no angel can say words of consecration and oblige God to come down into what was bred and become his very self. But a parish priest can, so it's better to be a parish priest. So all of the sacraments work in that way. We call it ex opere operato. But outside of the sacraments, the sense of God being free to act outside of any constriction 
because in the sacraments, God himself puts the constriction in and promises, I will always be there. The temptation is to say that more and more things have been guaranteed in that way by God. In the lives of many saints, we see encouragements and promises of blessings from God by taking on particular spiritual acts, but we don't have that promise that God will constrict himself by those prayers. And I think that's a teaching which is important, and particularly these days, an incantation-type philosophy and theology is promoted through so much on the internet. It's a sound teaching that needs renewing. Because without it, we will not be united with God and with Christ in the same way. As you say, it's about the openness of the heart to yeah. conform our heart to Christ. Yes. As a final question, this is being published in A Year of Prayer. Um, and how do you see it fitting in with Pope Francis' invitation to the church to, to reflect on how we pray? It's a wonderful starting point. In the early church, the sense of the personal spiritual journey, I think it was Origen, in the, who's a third century theologian, when talking, he asked the question, why are the books in the Bible attributed to Solomon in the order that they're in? And he says, well, Proverbs come first, because on first conversion, one needs to realize the difference between what is good and what is bad, and to focus on growing in what is good. And in that sense, deliver us from evil comes first. And it's something we've always got to go back to. And it's something which will always be part of us, you know, regardless of how many uh, times I go to confession and how much I pray and how many sacraments I rejoice in receiving. I've always got something to bring to confession. There's always some habit or some lack of charity or some omission which shows that the oppression of evil is still present in my life. And yet, Christ has won. One can also look at writings of, for instance, St. Thomas Aquinas, where he says that the Our Father is not only the most perfect prayer, but it's also in the most perfect sequence. And so the ultimate in praying is the beatific vision. Our Father, so we're all his children, the yearning of God is that we be with him in heaven, and our vision points in that direction, but we'll always need the support of being freed from evil in our mortal lives. Thank you, Father Robert.